welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we will be talking about Return from the Stars by Stanislav Lem. Hello. And we're going to be continuing our project today of reading a science fiction book and discussing it, and we're continuing our reads of dystopia, utopia books, right? R right. Yeah. R on a vague theme of, of utopia slash dystopia. Yeah. And so um, today we're going to be doing Return from the Stars by Lem, uh, another Lem book that my father has gotten me to read as part of this project. Right. Yeah, this is the whole purpose of this uh, podcast <laughs> is so that Caroline gets to read some Lem. Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> so, but well, you want me to give background on the on the book itself? Yeah. So, Return from the Stars it, it was written in the late fifties. It was published published in sixty one. Mm -hmm. So historically, I th I forgot. I was going to look up what was written before after Solaris, but it's from roughly from that era of his mm -hmm. writing. Mm -hmm. I guess that's all I want to say about it for the moment. Mm -hmm. And we do have a quote. Oh, not a quote, but just a paragraph about what Lem thought about this book, but we'll probably get it to at the, at the end. Okay, yeah, we can do it at uh, the end. Yeah, so the other the other one that we read by Lem was Solaris, which I really liked. I had I really, really liked Solaris. And Solaris is one of his most well-known books. And then I, I tolerated Return from the Stars. It was, it was something. <laughs> right, so the funny thing about Return from the Stars, I've read it many times, naturally. <laughs> and... Um, I remember liking it first, and this time around, I wasn't too crazy about it. Oh yeah. And uh, there's the parts of it that I liked, like, mm. and there are parts of it I really didn't like. And it's like, in fact, I read it and then I listened to the audiobook as well, and then I skipped past the parts I didn't like, <laughs> <laughs> and listened just to the parts that I liked. But um, some of it is a little bit dated. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's interesting the things that like we were talking about earlier before we start recording, um, the things that he predicted and the things he didn't predict. And it is right. a kind of interesting juxtaposition to have flying cars or whatever going on and big holograms and all these things, and then to have him like checking his mail to see if someone wrote to him as opposed right. to In mailbox, calling yeah, them. Yeah. yeah, right. It's it's very interesting. So you want to start? Uh, let me let me explain kind of the narrative structure. I guess it's pretty straightforward. It's a first-person story uh, told from the um, perspective of Hal Bregg, who is our main character. He's a man who. Um, Comes he's back an astronaut, from, he's right? An astronaut. So he's a pilot. He's a pilot, right? Yeah, and so, everything's told told from his point of view, right? So the the basic story is that he's a um, an astronaut who was uh, on this mission uh, to the stars to explore the stars, mm -hmm. and in his subjective time, the uh, trip took about ten years, mm -hmm. but because of you know time dilation and all that Einstein stuff, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know all about that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, 150 years or so passed on Earth. Mm -hmm. So he basically comes back 150 years into the future. Mm -hmm. And basically what happens is like he, that when a book opens, he's leaving the moon. Where mm -hmm. He stopped on the moon when, I guess, when the, when the spaceship returned. Yeah, Luna Base. And they had an organization called ADAPT. Yeah. Which was basically to handle people who, th there must have been many such missions, and they were mm -hmm. just basically receiving these astronauts back and kind of saying, welcome back. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Let, let us teach you a little bit about what's going on. Something's changed a bit, you know. Mm. And basically it opens when he is leaving the moon, right? He's going mm -hmm. to fly to Earth. Right, so he was supposed to stay there longer, but he stayed right. only a few days right. and demanded to be allowed to go back to Earth. He wants to go back to Earth. And, uh, yeah, it does open with the, the rocket ride, basically, from the moon to right. Earth. Right, and it's kind of funny because he's... Uh, Technology had changed quite a bit as far as spatialized is concerned, so mm -hmm. it doesn't feel anymore like the way it felt to him and mm -hmm. his and his ship. And it takes like fifteen minutes to go from 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 yeah, moon to the, the earth. Moon to the earth. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and he and the you know the the whole flight, he doesn't feel any forces or anything, which I guess is something they get into later. Right. The technology that is created to do that. But the the, the part of the book I like best is when he arrives on Earth. Mm -hmm. Right. So he basically arrives in Penn Station. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, he, pretty much. <laughs> he arrives at the space station and he gets out of his spaceship and is immediately lost. Mm -hmm. And it's like he has no clue what the hell is going on, which way to go. Mm -hmm. And and the whole description of him being lost in the station, it's like he doesn't even know if, am I still in the station? Have, have it's I left? Fantastic. It's I agree. I think it's probably some of the best writing in the book. And one of the things about Lem that I love is that he has such an imagination. Yes. And he describes things in ways that, well, we saw this in Solaris too, he describes things in ways that it's even hard for you as the reader to visualize it, but you kind of, you get like the feeling of what he's right. talking about, which was a lot of what Solaris was about with the ocean. And I think the great thing about the chapter, the arrival chapter, is that the, char the main character is so confused, and so are you as the reader. Right, right. But, but that's the point, right? You're supposed right. to, like, you feel just as lost as he does, and he's going around seeing, like, He's going from level to level. People are using words he doesn't know, right, you know, because no. technology has changed. And yeah, he asks somebody how to get out of the station. And he says, "Oh, just take that rest over there." Yeah, and he's and like, he says, "What?" Like, what? <laughs> I mean, he pretends to know what he's doing. Yeah. So for me, that that whole chapter was kind of double interesting because it's partly like was my experience as an immigrant coming to the United mm. States, where you arrive. It's not quite as, as crazy, but you don't really understand things. You, you can't really ask people things because mm -hmm. you don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. And you try to kind of find your way and, yeah. and, and stuff. So I kind of sympathize. Did anyone um, tell you to take the rest up and down? Probably. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I'm also sort of interested in, we were talking kind of about the language and his description. So this is translated from Polish, right? Yes. So have you read this one in Polish? I have, but it was a long time ago, and I haven't... Um, I don't seem to have a copy anymore. Mm. I'm curious how the translation affects the descriptions. Like if they're just as sort of ethereal. In the he has a couple of translators who are like really, really good. Yeah. Like, like super translators. So, mm -hmm. And this is a new translation because there were some old translations um, that were done from like from French or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but recently there, there's been a new translation. This is one of the new ones. Mm, interesting. Anyway, so he wanders around the station and it's like, you know, the adapter told him, says, you know, you should really, you know, take your time. And he was kind of... He was supposed to meet someone from adapter. He was too. supposed to meet somebody, but it's like, he has no idea. Yeah. He had to meet him at like the central circle or something. Yeah, and it, it, he he thinks to himself that he, he realizes kind of later on that day, like, the, oh, the point was that I was supposed to get lost because adapt didn't want me to leave. So they didn't come find me when I landed because they wanted me to get lost to like show me. Well, he was getting a little bit paranoid, I think. Yeah, I don't know that. that yeah, a lot. Of, so one of the things about the story is that a lot of the things Hal thinks about and a lot of things he encounters are never followed up on. That's one of the things that's never followed up on. But yeah, he wanders around for a while. Um, and he even finds an N4 
-hmm. which is like you know those universes Alexa or something mm -hmm. where you can go and ask it a question right. and it'll tell you what to do so he finds one and he says uh, can you tell me how to get out of this station and it gives him instructions and it just incomprehensible right <laughs> and which is sort of interesting because if you think about even like you know 10 15 years 10 15 20 years ago nowadays there's tons of technologies and phrases but that I mean if you think know. 150 years ago right mm -hmm. um, well they already had trains but they didn't have computers if, if they somebody wound up at an airport let's say from 150 years ago yeah. right and and you tell them you take the monorail to the next terminal yeah to, to get you know to find your gate yeah, exactly. Would they know what no to idea. do? <laughs> exactly. So he wanders into what appears to be like, a, I mean, eventually, a, this is a fairly long chapter when he kind of It's just, a very long chapter. The, the book is only split into eight chapters, right. so they're all pretty long. He, but one of the things I want to talk about here is that the, he's never quite sure if he's outside or inside because there's this constant sort of almost like, almost like a virtual reality thing happening right. where the sky is really like a screen. And it's in a it like, but it like projects the sky above it. Right. So it, it's like you're not really outside, but it'll look like it's outside. So he has a very hard time telling like what time of day it is. Right. Because at different areas, it, like the sky will be different. Right. And uh, it's it's sort of interesting to think about that extensive virtual reality that, and that that sort of is prevalent throughout the whole book. Right. That wherever he goes, he's kind of like. Uh, and the first half of the book, the second half of the book, when they go to Clavestra and all the places. That's yeah, that kind of falls away. Out of yeah. the country, you know. As, yeah. It's the city that is, yeah. all that uh, fear. So then he finds that he goes to the bar, right? And meets the first girl. Right. Is that the first thing that Well, he, he, yeah. it's not, it's like a club or something. Yeah. It, and he <coughs> finds a table and sits down. Mm. And of course, they talk all about all these furniture that kind of moves around and adapts to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. Like, he, he like, will try to sit forward and the chair will come with him. Right. And things like that. And it's like all things to be more comfortable and, and more convenient. And it sounds lovely. It sounds really nice. So this girl comes over and she, she asks him something. What did she say? When she first comes over, um, I think he's like sitting in her seat or something. As far as we can tell. Yeah. Well, that's, that's part of it. It's like he's very confused about the social norms and everything like that. And uh, her name is Nace. Right. And, I mean, basically they meet each other and she invites him back to her place. Right. They stop to eat something. Again, it's something mm -hmm. that he's never heard of. Right. Bonbons or something. Yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very confusing. But she invites him back to her place, and this is when we first sort of get introduced to the idea of betterization, right? And everything is sort of first explained in. As it, with, with like, no, he, he, she gives him this 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 right. milky right drink, and he says no, thank you, and she's like really confused. Yeah. So they go into her apartment, and you know he's sort of. So I guess sort of backtracking one of the things about the ship that he was on, the Prometheus, was that it was all men. There were no women on the Prometheus. Right, space bros. Space bros. So obviously, because it's all men, no sex was being had on this ship, because certainly that would not happen with all bros on the ship. Right, so the, the one thing that I thought about, this is like the, the manly science fiction from 1950s, where mm -hmm. it was the manly men were going into space, mm -hmm. and, and women stay home to cook dinner and take care of babies. Mm -hmm. So that's in, I guess from that comes from that vein. Yeah. Um, well, Lem also, I mean, in Solaris, also had like difficulties writing female characters, and right. so and we'll, we'll get. Which I have many notes on the the women, but the you know the one of the prevalent ideas here is that, 
and that that Hal thinks about a lot is that he hasn't been with a woman in over ten years. Right. And certainly because he was with all of his friends and all they were just bros broing out that whole time. There was you know no no that, intimacy that busy, had. Yeah. No intimacy had whatsoever in that time. Oh uh, yeah. So one thing I, I meant to to say is that. I think somebody asks him at some point about why weren't there women, and he says yeah. he can't raise children in space, and I says, "Well, don't we have birth control?" Mm -hmm. And though I'm sure there was birth control before then, uh, before the 1960s, but the mm -hmm. the pill was actually invented like 60 or 61. Oh, interesting. I mean, the other thing too is I so when I read that, I had I didn't know about that um, historical fact, but when I read it, I sort of read it as the idea that well, you can't take women on this 10-year trip because they will inevitably want to have children and so sort of the Lem's writing is very much colored by this uh you know exceptionally heteronormative idea about well it's not in the late which, 1950s which makes sense, right based, based on him himself as an author and it's sort of interesting um you know but particularly when we look at when we read books and analyze them decades and decades later and we think about how did a book age one of the things that's always going to happen no matter who you are is that your ideas in the time period will permeate like your writing. We, we have the same comment on brave new world right yeah. brave new world is, is brave new world but it's still the very very sexist and, and from, right. from our point of view exactly and it's sort of like there's nothing you can quite you know you can use your imagination to an extent but n no human's ever going to be able to like Accurately look seventy-five years in the future, hundred right. years future, right. and say like, "Oh, our our opinions on this whole thing will change." You know, like if you had yeah, I have some comments about that as well. But um, you know, if you had talked to the 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 fact that Lem's stories are are so heteronormative is clearly just a um, it's a cultural artifact. It's a product of, product yeah. of his age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's. I think that that I always find it very interesting because it's sort of when, the the difference between the difference between Doylist and Watsonian pr analysis breaks down, and I could explain that more <laughs> if you want me to. <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> okay. When we talk about the women, I'll come back to okay. it. Anyway, so we, yeah, you're right. We find out about betrization. Right. So what happens is he goes to her apartment, and he's thinking, you know, like oh, some stuff's gonna happen because I'm at this girl's apartment. Or he's like not sure what's gonna happen. Oh, he's kind of confused also because he said, you know, in my day, girl, nice girl like you, yeah. would not ask a man to, to her apartment without just, right. you know. So she gives him the Brit, and so right. we, were, we were explaining what the Brit was. Like it was like a milky. It was a milky drink, and he refuses it, and she's like really surprised. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what it was supposed to do. Like if you betricize it, kind of calm you down or something. So the right. So the she learns about what's called betricization, which is. In this future world, all children are betrazized. Betrazized. It's kind of like a vaccination, almost. Almost, yeah, yeah. I, um, that's what I said. That prevents them from being aggressive. Aggressive, yeah. And but that that has broad strokes. It includes not only just aggressive, like nobody can murder or nobody can attack other people, but are like straight up violence. So they also are um, unlikely to take risks and that sort of thing. Uh, because they can't imagine like being hurt or being something. Hurt. Yeah, they like can't or stand somebody, right. to be to be in that situation. And we learn from like another character that like surgeries, for example, surgeries are planned by people but performed by robots because a person who's betrazized can't cut into another human, right. even if it's for a good purpose. Right. We also learn that later that so there's sort of two drugs that um, work with betrazation. There's the Brit, which is this milky substance that if you are betrazized. Um, calms you down so it's 
sort of the and the way that Nace explains it, it was that if a man comes over to her place and like this is how it's normally is you give them Brit, they drink it and then you know that they're not going to attack you. Right. And then if like if she were to go over a man's place, he would drink it there. And it seemed to be like a drink that was like a little bit sex- just for men. sexist, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just a man thing. Because, you know, women don't attack people and women don't have strong sexual desires like that at all. So, it's fine. Just the men. Well, drink. that's not true. Like, wait, wait, we'll get we'll the next one. Right. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. Is that so, what was the other drug then that went along with this? I forgot this? the name of it, but it was the, it's the one that the that's actress kind of, has. Right. So, it's, it's semi... <laughs> so, it's sort of the opposite. It, it temporarily disables yeah. the betrization, yeah. Right. And allows you to do... Dangerous like, things. Right. And it's, like, very rare and, like, not spoken about a lot right and so when Naeus finds out that he hasn't been betricized he sees she's gets a little bit freaked out Mm -hmm. and he's kind of continues being confused yeah and he's like I'm not gonna like attack you I'm just gonna yeah but I mean you know she asks him if he can imagine killing her he says of course I can imagine doesn't mean I'm gonna do it and she's she's like terrified of it yep (laughs) so he finally winds up just saying fine forget it I'll just leave Right, and he goes and he gets a hotel. It's kind of weird. It takes him a while to find a hotel. Mm-hmm. I think he asks some robot at some point. Yeah, on the way to the hotel he does, yeah. yeah. He, I mean, he encounters a number of people throughout the story, which is interesting. So so that was one of them. So the first woman, Nace, is kind of one of the ways that Lem begins to teach us about the world. And something that we'll talk about perhaps more at the end when we're done uh, summarizing the sort of the narrative and how, how you construct a narrative when you're trying to both tell a story and world build at the same right. time. So he uses Nace to teach us about betrization. Right. So then he goes um, to the hotel, and mm-hmm. and again, it's kind of weird hotel where he goes into a room, there's nothing in the room, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even know, is it bed? where's the bed? He yeah. just winds up sleeping on the floor because yeah. he's so tired. And the funny thing happens with his clothing, like he goes into the bathroom where there is no water that like, mm-hmm. he can tell. There's like a little box for clothing so he puts his clothes in there and it disappears yeah <laughs> and then he asks the machine he's like where'd my clothes go yeah he calls the you know he calls the robot at, at the at the reception so yeah so oh, they, they went to the wash and they come back he like starts to kind of explore right so then he finds out like about the money right so he he finds out that there's this you sort of pay for some things but not for other things mm-hmm. He had an account at some bank before he left, mm-hmm. and now this has so much money in it. Mm-hmm. And he is, whatever the money's called, I forget now. Mm-hmm. And he has no idea how much that is and, yeah. and stuff. And then they have these electronic wallet things. Yeah, it was so interesting. It's cute. like they, they sent him like a, um, what's it called, a cylinder? Is yeah. That what they called it? I, I, I didn't write down what it was yeah. called. Was, but basically, it had like a little, it's like a little device with the numbers on it it was a mm-hmm. binary which is kind of silly yeah and basically you type in how much you want and you press a button and it spits out like a token that you can pay with yeah but a lot of stuff was just free like the hotel was not right so that's one thing i think he might might ask nace or something we learned that um they spend maybe like four or five of these tokens like a month right because so right. many things are just free you don't have to pay for right. anything so i mean i i guess like one of the potential boons of going on this kind of journey and coming back would be you'd come back like a billionaire right well but i mean it doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't do anything right so he he did have money that that kind of accrued at this one bank but it was enough for him to pretty much buy anything he wanted plus it wasn't really anything really to buy 
Right. The other interesting thing that happens in the hotel is the, the clothing. The spray-on clothing? Yeah, yeah. He doesn't yeah. realize, you know, what... He, mm. he looks in the closet and there's like a spray bottle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is so interesting. I feel like that is in Futurama. This book gave me a lot of Futurama vibes. I feel like Futurama... Like, Futurama put, pulled out a lot of stuff from that. Yeah. But I, I think, like, of, of the books we've read, I think this is the most utopian of the utopias because it seems... It just seems like a really pleasant place. The people seem happy. It's, yeah. it's how it doesn't fit, right? So Right, well, yeah. So then, uh, let's see. So then he goes to the doctor because he finds this doctor Yeah. because he he got taller or something. He, and he was... He, his clothes weren't fitting right. He right. put so his his clothing is returned, and he puts on like his shirt or whatever, and, and his like, sweater, his favorite sweater. Yeah, and it's like not yeah, it's not fitting correctly. He ends up going to a human doctor, who is a man who he knew as a child. No, not that one. No, this is just a doctor who was interested in in space medicine at one time. He's retired, and uh, who was he, the old man that he knew as a child? That was later on when he met in the park. Oh, oh, you're right, you're right. So he goes to the doctor. And uh, from the doctor, I actually find out a little bit more about uh, about the world, right? So, like, I have this quote that the doctor tells him. He asked about vaporization. Mm. And the guy told him, you know, that's nice you came. You went exploring space and stuff. Nobody cares. Yeah. And he says, this is the doctor saying, the society to which you have returned is stabilized. Life is tranquil. Do you understand? The romance of early days of astronautics is gone. It is like the achievements of Columbus. His expedition was something extraordinary, but who took any interest in the captains of galleons 200 years after him? <laughs> there was a two-line note about your return in the real. Real being the the, 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 the new movie. Yeah, the, the movies, yeah. This part reminded me very much of, of Brave New World, right? Mm. Because stability, 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 mm. whatever whatever the thing was, they, mm. they were interested in stability. Right. And if you read this conversation with this doctor, it's it's like he's talking to Mufasa Mond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was. It was very, very brave. The whole, I mean, the whole book has a lot of Brave New World vibes. Right. But I liked the doctor. I liked the meeting with the doctor. There, there was something I didn't understand. He was like, his spine, something was happening. He, he was getting So, okay, so what happened was, in order to get places in a spaceship, you have to accelerate, mm -hmm. right? And they were accelerating at twice the... A 2G, twice the Earth's gravity. Mm -hmm. So basically, he weighed twice as much on a spaceship as he would have weighed on Earth. So mm -hmm. his spine was compressed. Oh, I see. So when, when, they, when he got back and was back in regular Earth gravity, it's kind of started uncompressing. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was confused. And that's why he was built really well and had big muscles mm -hmm. and stuff because he had to move around at twice his weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and all the everyone else because of the vetrization, nobody would do sports like boxing or, or right. Oh, anything he, like he said there were some some silly sports. Yeah, yeah. The, he described the sports like like being very like very safe and. So oh, any racing was with like remote mach remote control yeah, machines. Yeah, so people were like very like small and weak, and shorter. He was much taller than everyone right. else. So we start to also he starts. Oh no! So the doctor tells him, "What are you going to ask him? What are you going to do?" Mm -hmm. And he says, "You know, all your friends are dead, and you you, you have no uh, colleagues essentially. So the only thing that left for you is, is women." Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's that's it in life. That's... Well, it's like if you want to have a companion to to hang mm -hmm. around with, you know, go hang right, around. Oh right! The doctor tells him like dye his hair. Oh, that's right. <laughs> dye your hair and and get rid of your wrinkles or whatever. <laughs> He says, because he said, you look like an old man who had like bad, 
you, that cosmetic surgery, yeah, yeah, treatment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of interesting the way that they 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 talk about women and like how to get a woman and what what women want and stuff like that, and they this is sort of when they talk about how people aren't impressed anymore right. by money you, you or bravery. You can make money because nobody cares. Everybody right. can get any, everything they want. Mm -hmm. There is no bravery to be impressed by. So, you mm -hmm. know, how, how can you attract a woman? Yeah. So it's kind of funny. This is like this old world view that, again, this is the, the very sexist mm -hmm. view of lambs, right? That, mm -hmm. that men have to impress women with money and, and yeah. strength and stuff. Yeah. That there couldn't be physical attraction just because. Yeah. Because exactly. the chemistry is right or something. Yeah. Right? So we start to also get, so throughout the story, we kind of get like these um, flashback kind of things where Hal is remembering what happened on his, things on that his happened trip. on the trip. And the, I think there's a very interesting juxtaposition between sort of like the peaceful st stability of the Earth society and the really like the real chaos and danger and um, and sadness the risks that happened. Of, 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 right. So he talks about his crewmates who died. Yeah. And he apparently was a bit of a hero because mm -hmm. he saved people a few times mm -hmm. and it's like he got as a pilot who would fly on these smaller ships to explore things mm -hmm. people would like to fly with him because he had he get he had a reputation of kind of always coming back and right. always returning with his man or right whatever. early on we got a, a mention of his scar of the scar he has on his chest right which is one of the few things that is brought up and followed up on so that's Good job foreshadowing there. Love it. Right. So like one of the people he talks about is this man named Arthur who was killed mm -hmm. somewhere along the way during the um, the trip, mm -hmm. but whom he at one point saved from some, pulled him out from some cave on something. Yeah, he pulled him out from the, from the cave with like that was filling with lava or something. Yeah, like they, were, they were on some planetoid exploring and something collapsed and mm -hmm. he got stuck and, and he, he went there and pulled him. Right, and then later on, Arthur dies in like a like an accident. Well, again, there was another flight the two of them took to explore some some like outer corona of some star, mm -hmm. and Arthur was lost during that flight. And we kind of, as as the story progresses, we find out that Hal kind of blames himself, mm -hmm. and that that you know because he imagines that one particular thing, his radio failed, and and because he didn't assist on backup radio or something. Mm -hmm. Right, so he kind of blames himself for that now. Hal wasn't that close to Arthur on the ship. Um, another person was very close to Arthur, right. Olaf. Olaf, who, who did come back. Yes. And so Olaf actually, in the very beginning, returns to Earth at the same time um, Hal does, but they don't return together, so they, they don't arrive at Penn Station together when they first come back. But so, okay, so then he decides to uh, spend some money, mm -hmm. and he winds up uh, renting a villa kind of outside the city mm -hmm. he goes to a bookstore yeah <laughs> gets himself a kindle and a bunch of books and uh, this is really really funny because lem essentially invents the kindle yeah i think uh, and what he didn't invent uh, is the internet yeah it's it's so just like you were saying before the things that are are imagined with things that then aren't imagined yeah he I, i'm one of the things that um Hall wants to read. He wants to read like. Well, he wants to kind of. Some histories. He got some like. He wants to, to learn uh, just just to understand better what what the hell happened to mm -hmm. the Earth and what's going on. Uh, one thing that he says that while he was on the spaceship during the trip, after a while, you get tired of reading the same novels and and, mm -hmm. and movies or whatever, and he mm -hmm. got into mathematics, mm -hmm. and as as a way to pass time, study mathematics. And he said he wasn't that particularly good, but he was very persistent, mm -hmm. and he had enough time. 
so that he would study stuff and eventually kind of understand it. Right. And uh, so he also wants to catch up on some of that. So yeah, he invents Kindle and, and, and Audible, except it's called an Optron, and I forget what the, the other one is called. I don't remember what the other one's called. Is it Optron? Optron is the thing that you read, yeah. Yeah, it is Optron. And he says it's like a flat thing with just one page showing, and you just swipe yeah. it to go to the next page. But the books have come on little USB crystals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. So it does kind of funny. So he got a bunch of the books. Then he so he decided to to rent the villa in. Mm -hmm. uh, and the villa sounds lovely. Yeah. I like this place. I would go there. Yeah, he wanted a place with a pool. He went out mm -hmm. in the country somewhere, kind of closer to and nature. Kept, was it this the place he kind of wanted it designed like a little bit old school? Right. He yeah. wanted to, basically like like if we wanted to go to like medieval times kind yeah. of thing. There's a point, I forgot what it is, there's a point when he goes and watches a movie, and the movie's supposed to be set from his time period. Right. And there's and all different weird things in it. Right, right. Like men wearing top hats and, yeah, yeah. and all kinds of stuff. He also buys a car. Yes, he buys a car. So they don't have cars anymore. They have these things called gliders and olders, which is mm -hmm. like, like gliders, like an Uber kind yeah. of a thing that flies, and older sounds like a bus, kind of a mm -hmm. bigger thing. And... So he goes to like antique store and buys a car. Mm -hmm. And uh, is this when we learn about the black boxes? I think a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that he's surprised, and this is kind of the interesting science fictiony thing in this book, is that when you travel in things, you don't feel any acceleration. Like mm -hmm. normally, you know, when you're in a train on the car, as it starts up, you you feel the acceleration. Mm -hmm. And here. He says you're going from Earth to Moon in 15 minutes, and you don't feel any acceleration. Mm -hmm. So he finds out that there, there was some brilliant uh, mathematician who figured something out. They call it he calls it parastatics, mm -hmm. and he plans to to learn the math. As a result, though, they can build these little black boxes that you stick into everything, mm -hmm. and that eliminates inertia. So basically, if two things collide, they just and then you can dissipate, and nobody gets hurt. Right. And, and, and it everything also, has that in it. And it also um, makes it safe for like pedestrians. Like if if you're right. gonna hit something else, it doesn't like the forces don't transfer over right, so right, that nobody right. gets gets injured. So which is kind of an interesting like, it's it's like it's, it's a really interesting science fiction idea that it's like do we just fix the issue of gravity essentially? Gravity, yeah. yeah. And he's like really surprised. Yeah. By it. And that actually that whole theory come up becomes useful to, for Olaf and Turbo later on. Yeah. Okay, so then he goes to, like in the evening, he goes to this park and meets this super old man mm -hmm. and he talks to him briefly and the super old man turned out to be a somebody who met him. When, when the old man was a child, yeah. When the old man was a child and he was training to go on a mission. Mm -hmm. And the man is, so the man is now like, you know, 100, 100 some odd years old. Yeah. And very, super frail. Mm -hmm. So they kind of talk about a little bit about the memories and stuff. And while he's in the park, he wanders into this is it's called Merlin's Castle or something. It's like a the ride. The ride. Yeah. Right. So so apparently it had these really cool virtual reality yeah. rides. And it's he a kind holodeck. Of, it's kind of holodecky, yeah. He he so he stumbles into it. He he sees a line of people basically. Mm -hmm. So he just kinda of joins it mm -hmm. and it has a hard time he you know, he doesn't want to leave and he gets attached to this couple. Mm -hmm. And when you go on the ride you wind up getting into a canoe mm -hmm. on a like, big African river. Mm -hmm. And you just get a ride down the canoe, like a little safari kind of thing. Yeah. And it's all like, well, 
most of it's virtual reality, right? It's, most of it's like projections and stuff. And he sort of figures out that it's not a real ride or it's not a, like a real that they're not in any yeah, danger. Yeah, he, he knows that it that it's not really a, right. But the, it's interesting because so so he goes on the thing, and then when he gets off, he's able to look at back at the ride and see that it's just like people laying down in a canoe and there's nothing actually around them. But what there is is water spitting at them. Well, right. So this is almost like a not just a ride it's more almost like a game yeah that you're in it like like if you were on the on star trek on on the polar deck you're mm -hmm. playing a game you have to do something right and so in this this ride they go in this river that narrows and narrows and they go into like a waterfall so they mm -hmm. have to kind of get off the boat mm -hmm. and i suppose the point of winning the game is getting off the boat safely so yeah you know. but the woman that he tries to get help across this like rickety bridge across this this rapids, mm -hmm. and she falls down. She falls into the water, mm -hmm. and he jumps in after her, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Because I mean, he he, he knows this is not real, mm -hmm. right? And I think there's one point where they have to duck under a tree, yeah. and he sticks his and hand out, and he feels nothing. He so he yeah. knows it's 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 not real. But he just like instinctively he 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 jumps in, mm -hmm. and as he jumps in, he winds up in this room where the end of the ride is, yeah. and the woman just everybody laughs at him, yeah. And and the woman says, "I always fall at this point." Yeah, <laughs> it's actually interesting because if anyone's ever done like those virtual reality, the VR system, like the goggles mm -hmm. that Chris has, there's a uh, I, I had a, I had an experience like this when I used Chris's when he brought it over once, and I it's like you put the goggles on, and so you. Everything, you know, all of your vision is just like in the video game, and they have just a few video games that do this now. I'm hoping that they make them make more because it's super cool. But it's one where the floor falls out beneath you. Oh. And so, like, the floor like starts to crumble, and the point of the game is like you're supposed to using the controller, you move, because you don't ever actually move your body, you use the controller to move around. But the floor begins to crumble out beneath you, and it was the first time I had ever done it. And I, like, in, in real life, I, like, jumped back, and I was very confused. <laughs> Right. And it is like, you know, your perception, of, particularly for humans, what you see is so important right. for how how you understand what's happening around you. And yeah, those kind of reflex. Like, so when I read that, I was like, same. But the thing is, so what they, they laughed at him and stuff, but also the woman said, how did you do this? She says, she says what do you mean, how did I do mm. this? And then it, I, I don't know if she explained it, or she realized that if, if you petricized, you would not take the, you know, you, you, you wouldn't do that yeah. because you would take the risk. Mm -hmm. And she turns out to be uh, quite beautiful. I mean, he mentions mm -hmm. that she's she's like beautiful beyond regular beautiful. Mm -hmm. And she kind of asks him to go with uh, with them, you know, the mm -hmm. the, the the date and and her uh, whatever. And they they go into this Merlin's palace, mm -hmm. right? And um, he finds out that she's um, an actress. Yeah, well, she tells him her name. Her and name of the character, and and it says, "I'm the I'm so and so in the real ones." Yeah, well, she tells so, so she she tells him her real name. She's um that's um, Anus is her name. A and Anus. A and Anus, not a very nice name, but <laughs> that's her name. So she says her real name, and he's like, "Okay, like it doesn't land." And she's like, "I'm so this character in this Amani movie." Amani in the real one. So yeah. whatever it was called. And he's like, has no idea, and he's like, "Okay." So. <laughs> and she's like, she's like stunned that he doesn't know who she is, and she says, "Like I'm very famous." <laughs> but I think I think that that makes him attractive to her. Yeah. So at some point in time, her date she tells her date to leave, or her date yeah, leaves and her date and is kind of bored. Yeah. And she just kind of leaves, and she um, takes him home. Yes, and that's and then they talk about the fact that he's not 
Betrazated, yeah. Betrazated, I forget. Um, Betrazated, I think, is the way this. Yeah. And uh, so she gets us the other drink. Yeah, and she take and she drinks the one that cancels out the betrazation. And a lot of Hal's interactions with women are like creepy. Well, because like he'll say, he says things like even to himself where he's like. You know, I want her. I want like I want to take her. I'm gonna take you, and like that's kind of weird. Um, well, in this case, it was like the, she was really in. The, she seemed to be more in control. Like it was she. Yeah, she, she was. She took him. And, she was interested in the fact that yeah. he was different and sort of um, more like more animalistic. Could had the ability to be aggressive. Right, and and she wanted to. Ex I guess it's like a sort of like a drug, right? You experience the mm -hmm. the, the fear that yeah. you normally would never have. Yeah, so then and he stays over. He stays overnight and then yeah. he, he leaves in the morning. And then do we see her again? I don't think no. so. No. So that's it. And then he goes to Clavestra. Then he goes to Clavestra. Which is this nice villa, kind of with nice pool. So he he talks a lot about swimming. Yeah. Again, it seems lovely. Yeah, and <laughs> he apparently was a diver, right? Mm -hmm. So he he. But not as good as some of the other people. Right. Uh, on his ship with him. Uh, but yeah, he likes his. So he contacts. He, I guess he writes a letter to Olaf. Yeah, he finds. Olaf. Oh no, he, he finds Olaf and he calls him. Yeah, Olaf's over in Europe. So Olaf was the other one of the other pilots who was friend of his, and he came down. And so he said, "Come on down. You know, I'm, I'm at this great villa. There, there's plenty of room, plenty of space. Mm -hmm. We have a pool. Get some boxing gloves." <laughs> yeah, he said, "Bring some boxing gloves. I want a box." And Olaf comes. And Olaf did get boxing gloves. Do you remember, yeah, do you remember he, where he got them? Yeah, he had to steal them from a museum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because boxing is no longer a sport. Right. So he comes, and then this is sort of when the story starts to deal more with, I guess, the he the heavier stuff of like the. Right. Know, so there are other guests at at the villa, right? So yeah. There's a young couple, mm -hmm. newly married or married or something, mm -hmm. and basically he just falls for the girl. Mm -hmm. But it's like in, in a really crazy way. It's yeah, like he surprises name, himself. Her name is Eri. We don't find out for quite a while. Yeah, and, yeah. But and Olaf kind of laughs at him and says, "I know why you you into her, mm -hmm. because she looks like the girls looked when we left. Yeah. She doesn't have all the you know whatever jewelry. I guess it was they, I've mentioned a few times there's some kind of jewelry that covered your entire ear. Yeah. So the the main things that Lem describes with the future women are. Puffy thing, puffy clothes on their breasts, discs on their ears, shiny discs on their ears, and um, red, like red makeup in their nostrils. That like they had like redness right. in their in their nostrils, which was strange. And I'm like, that's that's creative, you know, like thinking about future fashion is interesting. But yeah, but yeah, exactly. So Ari didn't look like that. She kind of looked right. So so he finds himself super attracted to her mm -hmm. but in, in a kind of very animalistic way he surprises mm -hmm. himself it's like mm -hmm. uh, and that's the part of the uh, story that i didn't like this time around because oh, yeah. mm -hmm. i felt like you know slap him and say control yourself man yeah and but maybe that has to do with the fact that as you get older you kind of betrazated <laughs> <laughs> well he he it's sort of interesting because I couldn't, as a, as a reader, I couldn't tell you the first thing about Ari. I know she's she was studying archaeology. We learned that eventually. Right. I mean, she's very young. She's very young. What else? Right. She. So he doesn't like. He doesn't really fall in love with her exactly. He's just right. He's, he's very he's, sexually attracted to her. Right. It's just like 
Yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah. It's like an animalistic kind of instinct. Right. It seems to take over, and he he himself is surprised, and he tries to suppress it for a while. Mm-hmm. So we have this little interlude when he goes with her husband. Oh yeah, the weird thing. So the the husband has to go into the city, and uh, Hal decides to go with him. Just well, he pretends he wants to get away for a while, so he says, yeah. I, "I also have to go to the city." Right. So they share a gleeder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They split the they Uber split the fare between them. <laughs> and they, yeah. So the guy has to inspect this. Uh, as, as they're going there, so he explains part of the, the world as it exists is that all the kind of serious work is done by robots. Mm-hmm. And who repairs the robots? Other robots. Mm-hmm. Who makes robots? Robots. You know, so this is like a you know, pre-matrix mm-hmm. world. And um, so he has, but, but people are designated to inspect these facilities, make sure things are going right. So. Mm-hmm. So they're going to this uh, robot dump, basically. This is like mm. with the recycling yeah. of robots. And this guy, his job is to inspect it. It goes like once a month or something. He has mm-hmm. to look things over and sign things. Mm-hmm. So when he gets there, it turns out the, the rule is that you have to have two people who inspect and sign everything off. Mm-hmm. And this guy's partner didn't show up for some reason. Right. So he says to Hal, well, you, you, ha- you have some expertise in cybernetics which he did mm-hmm. says why don't you just help me yeah and you know I says he says I don't know what to do he says you don't have to do anything just look around you know I'll show you what, what we'll be doing and then just sign that you've seen it mm-hmm. so he says okay and then the guy like leaves him alone for so right second. so so they go in there and and there's like a this big like a factory kind of a thing with yeah. some buildings and stuff and um, the guy gets called away right, right? they said yeah, they have no cell phones, so. <laughs> so he has called away to the office to 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 talk to somebody or something, and Hal is kind of just hanging out, right. and he hears some noises from this uh, building, and yeah. then he goes in, and so you tell me what happened there. So it's like this long silver, like he calls it like a barracks almost. Right. And he goes, he hears some voices, and he goes in. The robot at the door lets him in, and he steps on something, crunchy. And he realizes the voices are coming like from the floor and he looks down and what it basically ends up being is like a robot scrap heap kind of situation. But the scraps are still functional. Well, partly. they they say they're functional. (laughs) So they're all talking and they're all robots that are talking and saying things. And in the audio, so I also listened to the audio book. It is terrible. This is a terrifying part. It is very part. creepy. Because, yeah, because the, the person who does the narration does different voices for the robots, and like some of the robots are kind of like dying, so the voices kind of trail away. So I, I, I was listening. I happened to listen to this chapter when I, it was nighttime, and I was alone. Oh, Halloween. I, I got very spooked. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's really creepy. But basically what, what happens here is that he listens to various broken robots say different things. Some of them are just repeating the same phrases. They're going to There's broken. one who's like doing religious revival thing about... Yeah. Uh, There's one who, and this is a thing that Lem does a lot, there's one that is a, a robot that says, um, I'm not a robot, I'm a person, and I just got sick and I thought I was a robot, so they put me in here, but I'm not a robot, I'm a person. I like begging him to like help her. And then there's one that's saying, I am a robot, but I, they put me in here because I malfunctioned, but I'm better now. You know, and it's like, you know, the trembling is just, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not, you know, I'm fine. You can use me. And it's sad. And it's so weird. And nothing ever comes of it in the story. It affects right. nothing. This, this was just like, 
so this theme occurs in other Lem stories. Maybe we'll read some of them. But mm. he has a story about a visit to a insane, insane asylum for right. robots, mm -hmm. which is, of course, one of the robots grabs the person visiting, saying, listen, listen. I'm not a robot. I'm a person. I'm here by mistake. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. And this was just like scenery setting or something. It was just like a weirdness. Yes. Yeah, so, so he runs out because it's spooky. And then he does ask the guy that he came with, you know, what's that about? And the guy, the guy basically ends up explaining, well, the robots are self-regulating. So yeah, and he says, know, those, like, those are recycled. That's a recycled bin, basically. Yeah, he's like, we don't go in there. We don't, we don't do that. So the, it turns out that this, the supervision that they provide, uh, the, the humans provide, is pretty minimal. Yeah. Uh, they don't make any of these decisions about what robots get nixed or anything right. like that. So the other interesting, at Calavestra, he, he takes his car out for driving. Mm. Right. Yeah, you talk about this. I guess he's, he's kind of upset by the feelings that, that occurred, mm -hmm. that he's having towards uh, this woman. So he drives, tries to drive fast, and of course, he realizes that the black box that sits in the car won't let him to do anything dangerous. So he basically rips it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then he's able to drive fast. He like misses some turn. He hits the car and mm -hmm. dents it up. So it comes back and he parks it in, in, in the bushes so that nobody sees it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then next day when Olaf arrives, he says, "What you do to this car?" <laughs> It's all arrives, they swim, they box, yeah. the girl sees them and she's, he thinks he, she, she sees them because no, nobody fights. Yeah, and Olaf kind of talks about his experience and he, he punched somebody or something and broke their collarbone and the guy apologized to him, right. something like that. And he, like, he hasn't been having a good experience being back either. And they're both kind of, they kind of reminisce about what it was like on the Prometheus and stuff like that. And I think it's... They're kind of... Is it then when they're having this kind of argument about order? Mm -hmm. and, and I was going to say, I think that this is when... That happened like at dinner. Yeah. So they talk about Arter and the fact that, you know, Hal reveals that he blames himself for Arter's death and Olaf kind of yells at him and is like, you're crazy. Yeah, like, how stupid are you? <laughs> yeah, like, he's like, so many things could have, we have, like, we have no idea what caused him to go down. So many things could have done it. It's not your fault. Like, don't, how could you possibly blame yourself kind of right. thing? And we do also sort of throughout the story at various points get this foreshadowing of something happened on the Prometheus um, involving Hal that he like doesn't want to think about and doesn't want to talk about and it is in reference to the scar that he has on right, his chest right. and, it, and he, he as in like the narration acknowledges it a few times but it doesn't ever go into really any details but you sort of get this foreboding kind of like there was something else that that happened that has affected him a lot but we don't find out about it now we just kind of start to get this this foreshadowing going on so, so he hangs out with Olaf right and I think Olaf decides to go now so what happens is um, he and I think he decides he you know he goes swimming the girl is there mm -hmm. the husband is gone mm -hmm. so he just kind of ravishes her kind of mm -hmm. sort of and um, mm -hmm. she kind of seems to go along with it yeah and it's not clear whether she's afraid or what, but mm -hmm. she's like he winds up in her room and trying to explain himself, and right. she's just not not really saying anything. Mm -hmm. And he finally says, "Okay, I decided I'm going to just take you." Yeah, that's it. And she says, "Okay." <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so then, there's a part where I don't know if he and Olaf went and visited like the 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 coast 
some miles away where there's like a big cliff and things. When they go to the beach? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they go to like a, like a beach house of some kind, right? Well, so he rents a beach house for himself and the girl. Right. right. Is that, you're talking about something else? But I think that was before where he tries to basically kill himself in the car, right? So right. Olaf, he, Olaf says, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with you. You, mm -hmm. you, know, you deal with it. Uh, and, and he leaves. Mm -hmm. And he he says, no, I can't really go go through this thing with this girl. That's a terrible thing I'm doing. So I, mm -hmm. I, I should just kill myself. Mm -hmm. So he gets in the car and he's going, he he wants to drive to that place and, and essentially drive off the cliff, mm -hmm. right? And as he's driving, all of a sudden a gleater appears following him, mm -hmm. right? And he says, oh, goddamn Olaf, you know, <laughs> I wish he would leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And the, the gleater kind of gets ahead of him and, and pre prevents him from driving, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out it's the, the girl who's in the gleater trying to stop him. Mm -hmm. And then they said, oh, he decides, okay, well, then you might. Mm -hmm. And then they rent this cottage, he gets this cottage somewhere by the beach and they just go kind of there living to live there right and the husband never comes back into the picture anymore so yeah well so she sort of explains that like um she she wasn't exactly married to that guy she was like they're like a one-year thing like a one yeah year i think i think the the doctor also said early on that the marriages are like nowadays it's average marriage is about seven years it's, mm -hmm. it's up from four yeah so she had like a one-year marriage contract with him and she's like oh it's like a test yeah. You'd like you try it out, and if it works great, and if not, then it's okay. It's like as if it never happened or something like that. Right. I'm like, that's not a bad plan. So she's like, doesn't have to like get divorced or anything right, like that. Right. So, but then she ends up she and Hal get married. Right. So he wants to get married, so they get married. Yeah. And they. Which was weird. It's like a yeah, weird I mean, tonal thing to happen in the story. You know, like it's it's strange. I just thought it was strange. Well, I mean, so you can think of him as being kind of old-fashioned. So you're going to mm -hmm. kidnap a girl and and. and and ravish her, but you might as well marry her, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That was the part of the story that this time around I, I wasn't really crazy about. I, I just... It but I guess that's part of the point, right? It's like this was so be beyond his regular... You know, mm -hmm. he he couldn't control himself almost. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he's always been a very controlled person, mm -hmm. very precise and scientific and all, all that stuff. Right. And all of a sudden, there's this thing just exploded mm -hmm. in him and he just couldn't control himself. Mm -hmm. I think it was a plot that suffered from the fact that Ari, the girl, was like not a character. She like, yeah. wasn't characterized. And I think most of the women in the story are not particularly right. characterized. The actress, maybe. Not not even more than being an actress. What else do you know about her? You know, when it comes to when it when it comes to literature, you should be able to describe a character without without stating what they do for a living she or what they look like. She was very beautiful. You should be able to tell about the the actual character. So like, I don't even know what Hall looks like. I don't think Hall is ever really described except that he's tall. He's tall and, and muscular. muscular yeah. <clears throat> right. But I know that Hall has a lot of guilt. I know that Hall. How he feels about Prometheus. I know he thinks a lot about the purpose of his mission. That he's concerned right. with that kind of stuff, and that's all without t saying, you know, oh, and he's a pilot, you know, oh, and he's tall. So like that's that's kind of how you. Can, yeah. That's how I judge characterization. So, finally, we find out during one of the conversations in the middle of the night that he has with Harry, mm -hmm. in in the beach house, we find out about the scar. Yes. So the climax of the story is in chapter seven of the book, out of eight, 
and he tells her the story of the scar. And basically what it amounts to is during the flight of the Prometheus, he, um, they sent one of the other people, Tom, to a planet to check it out. Right, so that he has some interesting planet descriptions, yeah. like he does because of very low gravity, this, this, this planet was covered with like a layers of dust, mm -hmm. but was, because gravity was low, was very, was almost like air with lots of dust. And, mm -hmm. and um, so they would send this guy to explore it, to see what was there. And when he landed, the gas can, dust kind of got kicked up and basically cut off all got, the communication. And he got struck by lightning, they, they think. Right, the, static electricity, what, yeah, right. Yeah, they think right. that when the, when the ship was going onto the planet, it got hit and, um, it caused it to crash, so they lost communication. Right. So, you know, he, he had like a certain number of days of air available and stuff, and they, they were waiting for the dust to settle, but the gravity was very low, so it was all this... Uh, so it was taking a long time for the dust to settle. And finally, um, Hal decided to go try to save him. Right. And he didn't use a spaceship, he just went in his spacesuit. Mm -hmm. um, so when he lands on this little planet, basically there is no visibility. It's like you, you pull your hand out and you can't see it. Mm -hmm. So he was just stumbling around trying to find him and like the radar thing is don't work because of all the particles in the in the Where in they the use something to to find like the iron in the ship hull or something right. like that. Um which is so interesting because you watch something like Star Trek and they're like, scan the surface of the planet and then right. we found it. And know? one thing he had with him, he had like a jet pistol to so he could uh, basically jet out of there. Right. Because the gravity was so low that he could just kind right. of go into the atmosphere that way. And he does, he does find Tom's He stumbles ship. into Tom. He stumbles, he finds a ship. Mm -hmm. But Tom isn't in there anymore. Right. And he, he, and he stumbles around some more. And he runs into Tom, accidentally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's and spooky. It's spooky because Tom thinks he is dead. Yeah. You know, he's been there for a couple of days and this kind of wandering and, and mm -hmm. basically, and what would be darkness, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting to imagine the because they say like the dark the the fog was like so thick, and in my head I originally imagined it sort of as like brown, like a thick brownness, but the way he describes it, it's really more like a thick blackness. Right. There's no I no light. It like can, gray or yeah, blackness probably. Yeah. Like no light can really penetrate. He even describes like, you know, being with Tom and like them being very close to each other, and even there's that still being like very um difficult to see him. Right. But they can talk to each other over their radios because they're so close. And it becomes apparent that Tom thinks he's died, and he mistakes Hal for Arder, who had previously died. And basically, Hal tries to to convince Tom to you know, come, back. come back, and Tom thinks he's dead and freaks out, and Tom shoots Hal. Right. That's how he gets the scar. Right, and so the bullet doesn't, um, bullet or whatever, he doesn't really describe what it is, whatever, the projectile doesn't pierce the suit because the suits were very tough, but it hits the outside of the suit and presses it in as it, with such force that it actually um, breaks some bones, breaks yeah, some ribs and stuff like that and leaves a scar, ultimately. Then Tom... Just and, walks into darkness and he's gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hal manages to find a gun, mm -hmm. right? And he jets out of there. Mm -hmm. And he, he tells everybody that, he, that Tom was dead. Well, he tells everyone who can't find him. Right. And then he goes back and they do find, he finds Tom dead when he goes back. Oh, do they find him? Yeah, they find the body. I think they might even salvage the rocket. I don't know if they talked about Maybe, it. yeah, because of the, we wait long enough for the dust to settle. Right. And this was like the big secret that Hal was keeping. And I was confused by it. But basically he, he tells Ari 
that's like his explanation of the scar, and then that. And then he gets. Uh, does somebody write to him a call to to go visit Thurber, which who was mm -hmm. one of the members of the mission? Yeah. Right. So he he's like in his old town where he uh, at some university. Mm -hmm. So it's the middle of the summer, and there's no students. So he goes see Thurber. Mm -hmm. And what does Thurber tell him? Thurber's like, "Hey, we're going again." <laughs> <laughs> So they they have a mission to go to. They're planning a mission to go to Sagittarius. I think it was some other planet star. Yeah. It's a star that was mentioned in the story before that. Okay. It was something that was that was used. It was like something they used to navigate. And Olaf is there, and now Olaf hasn't seen Hal in a while at that point. Right. And they didn't part on like great terms. Right. Um. So Olaf's there, and Olaf has decided to go back. Right, and he feels a little bit guilty, and he mm -hmm. it sounded like he did, wasn't going to tell him. Mm -hmm. And so they just basically tell him, like, hey, we're going to do this mission, we're getting it ready, whatever. And then Hal goes, like, on a hike. Right, so <laughs> that kind of settled their, their, their kind of differences. Hal says, look, you, you, you want to go, go, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't care. And then he goes on a hike in the mountains behind the, the university, and... I think he says that this is oh he recognizes the place from his childhood like mm -hmm. that that he was there when he they used to go camping there or something mm -hmm. this little scene with the bird yeah and uh, he's like looking at the he's looking at the sky basically he he spent all night rather than sleeping just hiking in this mountain yeah and uh, he winds up at the, at sunrise sitting close to the top and the little bird comes and kind of walks around him and and stuff and then sunrises and kind of in the end yeah. And let's see. So there's a couple. So that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but since we just talked about the ending, do you want to talk about what the ending means? Because we're not. I'm sure. not sure. So the, 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 <laughs> what I, what occurred to me this time though is like think about the beginning and the ending and the contrast between the mm -hmm. two, right? The the in the beginning, it's he's in a world that he completely doesn't understand, mm -hmm. totally confused, and in the end, he's in the world. That from his childhood, it's it's natural mm -hmm. world, just the earth, not no, none yeah. of this stuff, right? Yeah. So that's the contrast. I think that's that's a really good point. I saw that in your notes. I hadn't thought about that. That's it's also sort of interesting too because like we talk about cities as being like you know like a jungle, like the concrete jungle or whatever, and then at the end he's in like an actual natural, not jungle exactly, but right. in the forest. And the fact that you know people, society might have changed so much, but the earth is fundamentally the same. Right. And that 150 years, well, might be so much for culture, is is nothing for right, the planet, yeah, right. and is nothing for the universe, right? right? And the story is sort of about Hall's interaction with the universe, right. and like the meaning of his life and that kind of right. stuff. So, did you have a quote or something you wanted to read? So this uh, was this was Lem's. Right. So this is just like Lem's uh, uh, opinion on this book, mm -hmm. and this is uh, he said. He said, I have some reservations about this book because of sentimentalism and the brawn of the, its characters. Besides, recognize some traces of remark, who's uh, another author. An author cannot help his characters only because he likes them. The romance could have ended just like in the novel, but under one condition. The heroine should have been more expressive character. Mm. He said that. I still consider the idea of betrization to be an interesting concept. However, I slightly oversimplify its realization. My ambiguous feelings towards this book can be seen by the fact that I gave permission for translation and foreign editions. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to talk about the women? 
Okay, go ahead. Talk, okay, about, the talk about the women. <laughs> yes, you talk about the women. Then we'll take a talk about this, where it falls on our dystopia scale. Right. So I think that with the whole time I was reading the book, one of the things that was just like screaming to me for the whole thing was that the female characters are just not not well developed. Right. And based on the Lem quote, it seems like he sort of understood. I certainly wouldn't describe Eri as a heroine in the story. Right. She has no role as a heroine whatsoever. Right. She has probably barely any lines. Right. So the sort of, I, was, I mentioned before, Doyleist and Watsonian analysis. Yes. Okay, so what this is, and this is what I do with Game of Thrones. So um, so it comes from Sherlock Holmes. So okay. Arthur Conan Doyle is the yeah. author, right? So there's the author's way of viewing the story and, and, and not analyzing why things happen in the story based on the author's point of view. So the Doyleist perspective. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Watsonian perspective, Watson. Dr. Watson, yes. Yeah. So what, why do characters in the story do things? And how do they function? So there's like, for example, in the Sherlock Holmes story, there's a difference between how Doyle solves the mystery and how Watson solves the mystery because of one being a real person mm -hmm. and the other one being a fictional character within the world. And whenever you do literary analysis or, or media analysis of anything, really, if you're thinking about things like, um, like sexism, for example, or uh, anything along those lines, you sort of need to analyze it in both ways because... Just because a story has like, uh, like a sexism problem doesn't mean that it's that's a bad thing. So I think like Left Hand of Darkness, for example, the main character, that whole story was playing on what is gender, what is sex, how right. does it relate to each other, and the main character's sort of like macho man is, was part of that critique. So, and I think that was intentional mm -hmm. uh, by Ursula Le Guin. Right. So you can say like the character is this way because he has these sort of internalized views of what are the sexes, what is gender, how, do, how should they be. And then you have the Doyless analysis of why did Ursula Le Guin do this? Well, she's writing this not because she's sexist, but because she's trying to critique this and analyze it. Right. And that's kind of where what I'm talking about when I talk about the, the women in the story, I think, really suffer because I don't think there's a difference between the Doyless and the Watsonian here. I think that Lem pretty much just applied his like his views at the time of how men and women interact and what women are like and what men are like and you know what would a man want when he comes back from space after 10 years well clearly he just wants to have sex with a woman that's all he can do and he just has this animalistic drive and he can't focus on anything else and he can't realize like the wonder of the world that he's in or have anything else going on because he just needs a woman immediately. I don't think that was done as critique or like as something that was intentional. Mm. I think that was, he kind of was putting himself in those shoes and thinking, what would I do? And I think that the, the female characters being Well, I would also argue that he wanted to maybe draw a contrast between the, the betrizated males and the real man. I, I would see that more if any of the betrizated males were characterized, right? So that's the thing, it's like the only characters you really have are Hal and Olaf. Right. And then the other men that Hal really interacts with are either either much older, so they're not betrizated, so he right. interacts with other non-betrizated males, or they're like the women, they're just sort of vessels for him to, for, for they're vessels for Lem to feed us the narration. Right. And, you know, like, like going to the robot factory, you know, Hal, Hal had no business being at this robot factory. But Lem wanted to show us his cool robot factory, so he yeah. contrived a situation where he got to the robot factory. Right. That I don't even remember the husband's name because he was never a character in the story. Right. He yeah. was just a, a, a piece. M something. Yeah. 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 
So that's that's what I mean when I talk about that. And right. I mean, I think the gist is just the, the women in the story are completely used as tools as a, and, and objects as opposed to being uh, fully right. developed characters, which I think does draw away from the story and could have been really interesting if Hall had been confronted by a, a woman who was a real character. Right, so like, I guess along those lines, what I was thinking about, um, this is my random thought notes, mm -hmm. but the when he learns about history of betterization, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's like you said, it's very similar to the idea of vaccination, where what at first was rejected, but and as generations came, generations adopted it, mm -hmm. and it, it to me it almost seemed like the the wokeness kind of a thing, mm -hmm. right? You, you, because he said like the old movies and old books just fell out of fashion and just were looked down upon, mm -hmm. and there was the new things that came because the cultures shifted so much. Yeah. Yeah, and he talks about how like the generations got even like had to sort of get used to that there was a, a stark right, right. That contrast. for a while there was a contrast between yeah. the there was the the old people's entertainment yeah. and the new people's entertainment. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and you know, these people were woke, these people were not woke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wonder if that's true for every generation, though. You know, to well, an extent. to a large extent, there's always some kind of generation <laughs> kind of conflict. Yeah, and and each generation wants to kind of invent their own things right and think that they're like they're so progressive and everything like that which is like at the time sure but mm -hmm. later on undoubtedly not so much i was kind of hitting on this with the narrative stuff before right so we also talked about how do you advance narrative and world right. building so, so you're for, interested in that i i'm very interested in that so i i write science i write really bad science fiction for fun and so i think about narrative structure and and world building a lot because that's probably like i always write things that are world building and I think in a lot of the science fiction stories we read, what we end up with is an author who made like a really neat thing. And they want to tell you about their really neat thing. You know, in Brave New Worlds, like, oh, this is a really neat thing, Solaris. Oh, check out this really neat ocean, you know. And, the, but the fact of the matter is the story isn't just you describing your scene, like your, your scenery. Your, their story is supposed to, is about the people and what they want and what they do within that scenery. And I think it's a very difficult, delicate balance to world build something to like to the extent of like this book, for example, or Solaris, to or even like nineteen eighty four. I think nineteen eighty four does a very good job of this. So I would put that up as a good example. Um, yeah, except for Manuel Goldstein. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very fine balance to world build enough so that so two things, so that your reader can follow you. And so that you get to indulge enough in your cool thing that you've made, but also be telling a story that's going somewhere. And I think science fiction books particularly are prone. There's only so many ways you can do that, right? There's right. only so many ways you can tell the reader what's going on. Right. You could just put it in the narrative and say, you know, to just put it in the narrative and just um, exposit about it. You can have characters talk about it. Or you can contrive some way where a character is learning about it uh, like sitting down and reading a book. Right. Which, <laughs> this is the third story that sometime in the middle, Hall sits down and reads a history book. <laughs> right. And, or was it a history book? Or, yeah, it was a history well, book. History, yeah, yeah. A and high school history book. Because what other stories did we have that happened in 1984? And Solaris. Solaris. Yeah. So, and like the character's just, character's just like, I want to learn about history. I'm going to sit and read. And then it sits down and it reads. And then you, the reader, are reading what they're reading. And so, therefore, you're learning about the world. 
and I get it like it's hard it's a very difficult balance to strike to be able to not have your reader be totally lost see you know? Len does that sometimes really really well and this book was okay in Solaris, I love when he talks about history of solaristics, where yeah. he describes the controversies in these mm -hmm. scientists, that scientist. There was this school of thought and that other school of thought. Yeah, and, I is, think it's really interesting. But but I wonder about things like having, like in Solaris, having the character sit down and read a book about it, as opposed to having the character debate with another scientist on the ship about it, or, and you know other other ways that that could have happened. Right. Now, Solaris kind of had an isolation thing going on, so I don't know so much that the di dialogue option right. would really be available. But, you know, it's something you, you've got to think about is how, how do you tell someone a lot of information? How do you tell your reader um, a lot of information in a way that isn't overloading and isn't... Um, in this book that I mentioned before, The Invincible, which is another book by them from that era, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there is that in it. Mm. Um, maybe we'll read it one day. But... Um, it's the story of a spaceship that tries to find another spaceship that was lost on the planet mm -hmm. and they land and find it and weird stuff happens. Uh, weird stuff happens in a Lem story? What? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think there is a part in it where the character like stops and reads a book or something. The, the, mm -hmm. There's just a description of traveling on through the planet and mm -hmm. just... Anyway. Well, that's great. So, I mean, it's sort of interesting. When does it... Um, I guess one of the questions I was asking is sort of when does it come to con become too contrived? When so like this this story for example, I, I really liked Solaris, and one of the things I liked about Solaris was there kind of was a clear purpose. Like the scientist was going there to study the ocean, right? And you know everything kind of unfolded uh, from that. What did you think in this one when he talks about the book by Stark about mm -hmm. uh, who wrote the book that says star travel is pointless? Yeah, it was really interesting, and I well I think that kind of gets to themes. And okay. stuff. I mean, the last point I just wanted to make about the narrative was that mm -hmm. this story was kind of more of like a stumbling story. Like there wasn't really a right. There wasn't really a point exactly. Like I couldn't. I mean, thematically there's stuff, but like the character didn't have a goal or a want or motivation or anything. Right. What lines. What I I think I told you this before is that when I read this book before I thought that in the end he decided to go back and fly mm -hmm. to the stars with all these other guys, mm -hmm. and on this reading I realized that it's he really didn't, mm -hmm. and and it's unclear whether he would or not. Right? Yeah, I think it's unclear. I, I would lean more towards he didn't decide to go back. Right. But I, do, I do think it's unclear, and I think if he had decided to go back, that would have made thematically more sense. Right. Almost. Which is probably why Lem didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about our our scale of dystopia between Brave New World and and nineteen eighty four? This is clearly Brave New World. Yeah, right? it's more Brave the New Brave World New World, World wavelength, definitely. And uh, the the couple of things that I found was the um, you know stability, mm -hmm. betterization, you know some kind of a chemical process. To um, being taught things while you sleep. Being taught things they while you sleep, yeah. right? So you know Hal is clearly to me John Savage. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I like that. You want to explain explain how he is John Savage? Well, you know. He, he was raised in the wilderness, you know, that was before the civilization happened, right? Mm. He comes back and he acts like a savage. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I think that that's a, that's a great point, like a great analysis. Of the, other, the other way I thought about the, the, his interaction with Eri at the end was like a beauty and a beast kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. you know, he's the beast, he kidnaps the beauty. Yeah. And he's a really nice beast. Yeah. <laughs> Underneath. He just wants to have like a chill time. <laughs> he, wants, he likes the ocean a lot, you know. 
Um, when it comes to dystopia and utopia, I don't, I don't think that the society that we're presented with really has any evidence of being a dystopia. I don't think that that was... I think this is a dystopia like from our point of view, mm -hmm. because somehow we think that we should be allowed to have to dangerous things and, and, and... Well, that's the thing that I was wondering, it's what I wrote in my notes, is it's a utopia for... It, it's a more of a comment on the fact that it's not a utopia for Hall. That it's a utopia for everyone who's in it, but it's not a utopia for Hall right. or the Returners. Right. And I guess the question is, if it's not a utopia for everyone, is it a utopia? Right? It's very... It's very... Um, the ones who walk away from Omalas. Did you ever read that story? Yeah, we, we talked about it, yeah. You know, if, it, if it's not a utopia for everyone, is it a utopia at all? In that same vein, can utopia be subjective? You know, and I think probably to an extent it always is. To an extent, is. I would argue, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, again, I like to bring this up, like if somebody from 200 years ago came to live today, mm -hmm. right back 200 years ago, you could have certain freedoms that we can't have anymore, mm -hmm. right? You could go, you know, like, like I said, you can take your gun, go into the wilderness and just be free. Yeah. Right. Can't do that anymore. Is that good or bad? You know, we don't, for us, it's just fine. Mm -hmm. But for a person from 200 years ago, probably would be miserable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I guess one of the things I think the story gets at a lot is kind of what, what do you do when you don't have a, a purpose? And right. to what to what extent does pur is purpose linked to happiness? And I think that throughout the story we could have got this stark contrast between the like I was saying before the stability of the society and like the crazy violence that was the Prometheus and like the sadness that happened in the Prometheus. But for Hall, being on the Prometheus has this sort of nostalgic kind of like the, the memories of that is very nostalgic for him because he's remembering he remembers the sadness and the people that died and like the horrors and everything like that and these extreme things he underwent but it also was like his mission it it's, was it's a, you know you want to struggle against something right? right you don't want things to be too easy necessarily right? right and it's sort of like without that what it kind of brings you back to like what is the point you know and without and having been a person who experienced those extremes for a decade how does he come back now to normal you know quote unquote normal well the life? doctor kind of tells him that right he said you know Nobody cares about your, your space travel, mm -hmm. you know, your, your great adventures. You, you can write your memoirs, but nobody's going to read them. Mm -hmm. So the only thing, women. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think that is also a really interesting comment. I don't know if Lem meant this or not, but it turns out to be a really cool comment on uh, like PTSD and coming back. Because it's a very much a parallel to like going to war and coming back. Right, I didn't think of it, but that's a good point. You yeah. Know? Because like it's the same kind of thing, you know. If you're deployed, and you're in, you know, a, a active, violent area or whatever, and you're shooting at people, and people shoot at you, having friends in your uh, squad die. I'm sorry, I don't know all the, I don't know the correct words, but having your yeah. fellow soldiers dying and stuff like that, and you kind of are in this like very extreme, very narrow place for right. a long period of time. And then you return, return to normal life. How, I mean, how could you ever readjust to after right, that? Right, right. So... How could anything Hal does for the rest of his life on Earth be anywhere near as important and, or and exciting? And actually, you're right. It's, it's, it's a lot of people who have fought in wars have the similar feeling. It's like mm -hmm. the, 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 the intense experience of combat. Mm -hmm. Just everything else pales next to it. Right, exactly. How can, how can anything be 
important. It's important, scary, enjoyable, um, necessary, and like all all those things that give people meaning. Because people, I mean, one of the things Hal struggles with is like, what's the point? Right, and and he was very disappointed by reading this book by Stark, which says, you know, tra space travel is just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna do? <laughs> exactly. And, and Thurber, and at the end of the book, kind of tries to tell him, says, you don't don't believe that crap. It says, you know, it's not. You know, we never expected to to find other civilizations or mm -hmm. anything, or have communications or anything like. We went there because it's there. You climb the right. mountain because it's there because you, as a person, wants to explore. Right. And. Um, Thurber has a good quote. I didn't write it down precisely, mm -hmm. but it's it was something along the lines of, uh, "Man needs to eat and clothe himself, and everything else is madness." <laughs> and it's true. It's like we we create things. We we purposefully create problems for ourselves to be able to continually solve. I mean, like, my whole job is me solving fake problems, right? Because we made laws that we kind of arbitrarily decided to apply, mm -hmm. and now we have to apply them, and now we have to make the whole thing work to apply them. And it's like, this is hard, Right, we make computers, and they create a whole bunch of slew of other problems. Right, and so we, it's, like, it's just a mess. Right. And that's what we do. So I think it's really interesting. I, what I think about Return from the Stars is it doesn't, it, it poses these questions, but it certainly does not even attempt to answer this question. Right. You know, and I, I'm curious what, it's, I mean, it's similar to Solaris and that Solaris poses the question of like, what is life? And then doesn't really answer it. But right. I, I, I like that ambiguity. I like this ambiguity less. Yeah, this, compared to Solaris, this wasn't quite as good. And, and yeah, the only other thing, I maybe, like I said, I'm always surprised in these books what they don't invent. Mm -hmm. Right. So the thing that kind of, stood out for me communication mm -hmm. it's like telephones mail come on yeah come on you have flying cars yeah <laughs> well so it's so interesting to think about like like if I, if I were to sit and think about like what kind of communication would we have in the future i don't know the cell phone seems pretty neat right so i mean star trek kind of invented that part there's a really nice talk by charlie strauss a science fiction writer who talks precisely about that like mm -hmm. you know what kind of things and he also says that in his writing, he never thought that people would walk around a piece of glass that would connect them to all the world's information. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to think about things that are like, um, would make my life easier, you know? Like, I wish my car could talk to cars around me while I was driving, just like by itself. Mm -hmm. So that the people around me could know, like, I need to, I'm exiting at exit eight, so I need to get over now. Please let me over, you know, but like tell the other car. Don't tell the mm. person because the person's not going to care. Right. But, you know, like, and we, we're sort of starting to have like automated cars right. that kind of have that idea. But I've always sort of found it interesting that like there's not more immediate communication between cars. Like even if I could even send a message to a person, you know, next to me in a car, like if I look at their car and I see that their tire's flat or something, you know, being able to send them a message. Right. Not having their phone number or anything like that, but right. just because of their proximity. Or things like I wish my GPS wasn't on my mounted on my phone. I wish my GPS was displayed on my windshield, but like sort of see through, so I can still see right. the road. But a so heads up like, display kind of a thing. Right. Like I wish we had stuff like that. I, I I'm waiting right, but for those, them. Those are very uh, kind of obvious things, you know. Well, why don't we have them then? Just I'm waiting for the day that they make ta anti anti gravity tables, so that tables don't have to have legs, so I can push a table from room to room. Do you know how much easier my life would be if I could push a table from room to room? <laughs> Why don't we have that? <laughs> I just want things that are convenient. <laughs> right, that's not bad. But um, 
you know somebody I don't know who said this but you know the prediction is very hard especially especially in the future <laughs> so I just I just find it interesting so like you know in Philip K Dick also there's lots of flying cars rocket planes mm. no cell phones there, there's a book maybe we'll get to called Doomsday Book it's a it's time travel mm. and part of the plot is that there so telephone telephone network is down in Oxford, England, and nobody can get in touch with anybody else. Mm. I mean, there even there are episodes of Friends or Seinfeld from the '90s where uh, I think there's an episode of Seinfeld where everyone's waiting in line for tickets or something, and they keep like leaving line or whatever. And part yeah. of the plot is that they can't get in contact with each other to know where they are in line. Right. Which is it's well, but impossible. I mean, right. So that changed now. But, yeah. But that wasn't science fiction, so. Yeah. But but is it though? Because. Real life is science fiction in a lot of ways. Mm. <laughs> Do you think this story aged well, aged well? Right, so the other things that are like, he smokes cigarettes. Yeah, well the only the ones he brings back, right? right. Then he, does he find them anywhere else? I doesn't say, but I'm... How did he smoke cigarettes on a starship? That's right, yeah, that's what I would... That, that was another thing that I thought. There are a couple of things like that. I think that the, the part that, that I like best, which is the introduction, you know, the, 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 him being lost in a train station, even that is a little bit dated now, mm -hmm. because like he has these floating signs that are, hey, mm. uh, you know, advertisements or something, uh, moving sidewalks. Yeah. You know, big screens of things. I mean, quite a lot of what he describes we could do now. Right. I, but yeah, the communication stuff was always, always fascinating. Right. Like they sent him down to Earth. They wouldn't give him something to, to get in touch with them. Yeah. Being lost, like in, in 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 the in the world, is kind. Of, I I like that. That was my favorite chapter. That's why I like this book. The rest of it, um, him uh, becoming a beast and kidnapping uh, Belle. I don't know. And it's discreet idea. It's not. I don't think it's like a bad idea. But I think that it, the characters around Hall, I felt, was very well developed. But the characters around him. Yeah, the women were it. just like. And without without that buttressing of his character, it's. You can't tell a story with one character when the story is about how he interacts with people, mm. right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I've read all of Lem's stuff. He doesn't really have women characters in his stories. Probably so. the, the Solaris was like the, the, the main one. Um, so what are we reading next time? Hunger Games. We're just doing the first book? Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry, I don't want to read the second or third one either. Did you want to watch the movie with it too? I've seen the movie. I want to read the book, and maybe we can rewatch the movie or something. Okay, because I know what, when we did the aliens, we did one one of them. We did a right. movie. The the movie adaptation is very close to the first book. Okay, uh, it's a very very true adaptation. Spoiler alert! I'm going to complain about the writing in the Hunger Games because it sucks. It's a good story. Let's let's see if I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's super weird. It's not it's not written in the it's written in um the historical tense. So it's like a, it's like present tense. Okay. So it's it's very it's a very weird style to write in, and okay. it didn't really work. But we'll talk about it. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our our overlong podcast. <laughs> All right. See yeah. you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to History in Reverse. Um, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.
this is sort of a time travel story. This, right, uh, right. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm wondering how much Len borrowed from there. Mm. I'm gonna put a timer on so or stopwatch on so we can keep track. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we have our our cough drops ready to go. <laughs>